At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Welcome to our series, Unstoppable, Bound in His Love, Freed by His Spirit, where we're journeying through what many call the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans 8, to uncover a more lasting force than hard work and a more enduring purpose than momentary success. Good morning, church family. Good to be with you all in worship this morning. If we haven't met, my name's C.T. Eldridge, one of the pastors here, and a joy to get to open the scriptures with you guys this morning. We are in Romans chapter 8, the sixth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and we're in chapter 8, verses 16, I'm sorry, verses 18 through 25. Romans 8, verses 18 through 25. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and he didn't know this church. Best we can tell, at this point, Paul had never been to Rome. And so he's writing this letter in advance of visiting them, and because that church doesn't know him, he wants to explain his understanding of the gospel to him. So he gives a lengthy, detailed explanation of the gospel and the nature of saving faith, and the nature of salvation through Jesus. And uh, we are in the middle of one of the greatest chapters within this book, one of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible, Romans 8, where Paul has finished explaining our need for the gospel because of our sin, and now he's explaining the salvation offered to us in the gospel, and it is glorious. You recall last week that we talked about through faith in Jesus, we become children of God. Through the gospel, we're adopted into God's family. And that leads into where we are this morning. So I want to read the last couple of verses that we looked at last week and how that's going to set up the verses that we're looking at this week. So Romans 8, verses 16 through 17, Paul said, The Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That's one of the things the Holy Spirit does. The Spirit speaks to our spirits that we are God's children. And, verse 17, if we are God's children, then we are God's heirs, the heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Christ, in order that we also may be glorified with him. So yes, we are the children of God through faith in Christ. Yes, we are the heirs of God through faith in Christ. And still, it will be proven so as we suffer with him. And that's going to lead into this next several verses. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. As the apostle applies the gospel to our experience of suffering in this life. Romans 8, verses 18 through 25, brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the whole creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope 
that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In 2016, the New York Times published a front page article reporting that the suicide rate in the United States was at a 30-year high. So the suicide rate is tallied by determining how many suicides occur per 100,000 citizens. And that rate in 2016 in the U.S., according to the Times, was at a 30-year high. And that same article reported that from 1999 until 2014, the suicide rate had gone up 24% and climbing rather quickly. So not only is it going up, it's going up quickly. During that same period, the, during that same period, the suicide rate tripled for girls ages 10 to 14. And if you break down the country between our different races and genders, then every racial and gender category saw a rise in their suicide rate except for African-American men. That's the only race gender group that saw a dip in their rate since 1999. Now, of course, many experts were asked to comment on these statistics, sociologists, psychologists, and most of them cited diminishing job and economic opportunities that was the cause of this. However, as I said, African-American men, one of the most economically excluded within our society, saw their suicide rate drop. So maybe it didn't have everything to do with economics. And I certainly doubt that financial concerns had anything to do with a young girl deciding to take her own life. But within the article, there was one expert, Robert Putnam, a professor of public policy at Harvard University, Putnam was the only expert within the article who mentioned a growing sense of hopelessness within our society. A growing sense of hopelessness. In his book, Making Sense of God, author Tim Keller is reflecting on this New York Times article and the statistics and data within it. And he asked the question, quote, Why should modern people feel more hopeless when arguably our lives are more comfortable and we are living longer than ever before? In other words, how can we have more money than ever, more stuff than ever, more lifespan than ever, more scientific achievement than ever, and yet also have more despair than ever? 
And the answer lies in a lack of hope. The modern, Western, secular worldview has a tragic lack of hope for the future. And here's why this is so important. This is a quote, again, from that same chapter in Keller's book. Here's why hopelessness is so important. He says, quote, What we believe about our future completely controls how we are experiencing our present. We are irreducibly hope-based creatures. In other words, you can give us all the earthly goods possible, money, food, shelter, health. You could load us up on all those things, and it wouldn't matter because those things are temporary. All of those things are ultimately perishable goods. What we live off of is hope. What we need is a confident certainty, not that we'll be taken care of now so much, but that we will be taken care of in the future. I can go through anything right now if I know with confident, hope-filled certainty that I will be taken care of in the future. Keller has this thought experiment in his book. He says, imagine that you are offered a job and at the end of working that job, at the end of a year working that job, you received $50,000. So this is a mindless, task-driven, assembly line kind of job, just standing there all day, screwing a whatchamacallit into a thingamadoo. But hey, it pays $50,000, and I'm pretty sure that's more than the average for here in Lapeer County, maybe even much more than the average. Now imagine the same scenario, same job, same everything, except this time at the end of the year, instead of getting paid $50,000, you get paid $50 million. Now is that going to change how you view your job? Is that going to change how you show up for work? Is that going to change how you carry out your work? Because you see, now there is a future-oriented outlook that is one of joy, expectation, excitement. No matter how bad that job gets, no matter how miserable it is, no matter how miserable your boss is, you will have $50 million worth of hope that will enable you to endure. And that is what the secular worldview does not have. Doesn't offer any Hope, Because in the secular worldview, there's nothing beyond this world. There's nothing beyond this life. There's nothing beyond myself. And no matter how much earthly good and prosperity and achievement we, we may obtain, in the end, we're just going to be sucked into a black hole and there won't be any memory of us left, let alone physical artifact. But that is in stark contrast with the hope offered to us in the gospel of Jesus. And the way we see it put in our text this morning is that our present sufferings will give way to future glory. Paul has said, we are God's children provided we suffer with Christ. So the Christian life is not lived free from suffering. Even over this last week, many in our church family have been painfully aware of sickness, disease, sin, 
and death. The Christian life is not lived free from suffering, but our present suffering will give way to future glory. Look again at verse 18. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So Paul doesn't deny that we have sufferings in the present time. There's no denying that. And Paul himself was well acquainted with all sorts of physical pain and mental anguish and relational strife. So he doesn't deny or minimize our present sufferings. What he does do is maximize the glory that is to come. And the present sufferings aren't even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's like comparing $50,000 to $50 million. $50,000 can get you through one year's worth of expenses. $50 million can get you through a thousand lifetimes worth of expenses. Way more than you'll ever need. It's not even worth comparing. And the idea is, because we know there is incomparable glory for us to be experienced in the future, we can endure anything life throws at us now. And in the rest of these verses, he's going to spell that out, what that future hope looks like. What does the future hold for all of creation and for God's people? First, the creation groans for its full restoration. The creation groans for its full restoration. Look once more at verse 19. Sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed in us. Verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So here Paul personifies creation. In other words, he imagines that all of creation is a person waiting, waiting with eager longing. And what creation is waiting for is the revealing of the sons of God. So we are the children of God now, but there is an end time revelation of us being the children of God. And all of creation is waiting for that. Creation is longing for that to happen. Verse 20, he continues. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So Paul reminds us here that humanity's sin against God not only had consequences for our individual lives, it also had consequences for all of creation. So there are personal consequences for our sin and there are cosmic consequences for our sin. The way he puts it here is that the creation has been subjected to futility. Creation is broken, life is broken, and the created order doesn't operate the way it was meant to entirely. The way he puts it in the book of Ecclesiastes that we studied this summer is that life is vanity, vanity. It's all vanity. And you recall from Genesis 3, after the first couple sinned, God banishes them from the garden and then he tells the man outside of the garden, away from my presence, the ground is going to be hard and cursed. 
And thorns and thistles are going to choke out your efforts to prosper, and you are only going to make it by the sweat of your brow. And so it has been ever since. The creation still has an amount of beauty to it, no doubt, but it is not the life-supporting paradise that you and I were made for. And it's here that we instead experience purposelessness, emptiness, and brokenness. Ultimately, death. The creation was subjected to futility, but it was subjected to futility in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So creation is bound to be the context for the existence of sin and death. It is in bondage to corruption and decay. But there is hope that it will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There is a future hope that creation will once more be the context wherein we are free from sin, free from insecurities, free from suffering, free from death. The freedom of the glory of the children of God. What a beautiful string of prepositional phrases there. That's what one day creation will be, a place for the freedom of the glory of the children of God to be experienced. Until then, verse 22, we know that the whole creation is groaning together as in the pains of childbirth. So here again, he personifies creation. He likens creation to a pregnant, birthing mother. And if you've ever been around a pregnant, birthing mom, or if you've ever been a pregnant, birthing mom, then you know there is waiting and longing and hoping, and eventually, as the birth gets closer, there is sweating and pushing, and as Paul says here, groaning or screaming. He says, in the same way, the whole creation is waiting, longing, hoping, groaning for something new to be born. The revealing of the sons of God. When the curse of sin will be undone forever. You know, much of contemporary Christian theology envisions salvation as an escape from the world. So salvation means getting away from earth to heaven. You think of songs like, I'll fly away. When I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. In other words, I am out of here. I'm going away from earth to the heavenly realm, to the spiritual plane of existence. And certainly it is true that when we die in Christ, we go to what theologians call the intermediate state. When we're absent from the body, but present with the Lord in heaven. However, that is not our final destination. The intermediate state is just that, intermediate. And our final state includes the end time restoration of all creation. The renewal of all things when God makes it on earth as it is in heaven. 
Christian, our hope is that the world will be restored. God is not only interested in saving us individually, he is interested in restoring creation collectively. Right now in the world, there is futility, fear, perversion, emptiness, abuse, disasters, death, lack of resources, lack of hope. But in the gospel, we have a confident confident certainty a firm hope that God will make all things new. All things, spiritual and physical, personal and global. The creation groans in hope for its full restoration. Secondly, God's people groan in hope for our full redemption. God's people grown in hope for our full redemption. Look at verse 23. Paul writes, And not only the creation, not only does the creation groan, but we ourselves. We who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, and yet still we groan inwardly. As we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So notice there, he refers to those of us who have the first fruits of the Spirit. In other words, we are those who in Christ, by the Spirit, have begun to experience the heavenly life. In Christ and through the Spirit, we have begun to experience the fruit of our salvation, but we've only begun. We've only tasted the first fruits, and the final harvest has not come in. And so not only is creation waiting with eagerness, groaning, and agony, but we ourselves, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our full redemption. And he refers to that full redemption here as our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So on the one hand, we have already been adopted. He said that in the verses we looked at last week, verses 14 through 17. On the one hand, we've already been adopted, but on the other hand, we still wait for the fullness of our adoption to be experienced. Specifically, we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. So again, oftentimes, Christian teaching emphasizes the salvation of our souls, the salvation of our spirits, and certainly it is true that we have an immaterial aspect to our identity, our soul, our spirits, but that is not all we are, and that is not all God is going to save. We are embodied creatures. We are embodied souls. And God is not only interested in our spiritual existence, he is going to accomplish the redemption of our bodies. In his book, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies, author Sam Albury writes this, quote, For the Christian, death is no longer a threat the way it once was. It has been defeated in Christ. And so the signs of aging in our bodies 
are no longer a threat, but a promise. Gray hair on my head, sagging skin on my body, deepening lines on my face, don't need to speak of a past I can't recover, but of a future I can barely conceive. He goes on. The real glory days are not behind us, but ahead. For us who are in Christ, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel makes death just a gardener. You don't bury a Christian. You plant him to one day arise in perfected glory. I know there are many of us here whose bodies don't work like they were meant to. I know there are many of us here whose loved ones' bodies don't work like they were meant to. There's some of us here who've held the hand of our parents as their bodies shut down on them. There's some of us here who've held our spouses as life left their bodies. And there are some of us here even who have held our children in our arms as their bodies failed them. Friends, the sting of death is real. And the wages of sin are high. But there is an incomparable glory that awaits us. And this glory includes not only the salvation of our souls, not only the renewal of our spirits, but the redemption of our bodies. And the brain, once racked by Alzheimer's, will one day be fully restored and crystal clear. And the hands, once mashed by arthritis and debilitated by time, will one day be straight and strong, fully capable once more. And the body, once riddled with cancer, will one day be pure and free and functioning on a level that we can't even dream about. Our present sufferings are real. Our present sufferings hurt. Hurt oftentimes so deeply it discourages us. We lose heart. We lose hope. We think, how can I go on? The apostle says, the way to strengthen your heart is to strengthen your hope. The way to strengthen your resolve to endure the present is to strengthen your hope in the future. And oh, what a future awaits us. Oh, what a future awaits us. The restoration of creation, the redemption of our bodies. In that same book, Albury references this entire genre of magazines and TV shows and blogs wherein they will list out 
and talk about the 50 foods you have to try before you die, the 100 places you must visit before you die, the 100 things you must do before you die, the 50 movies you must watch before you die. There are shows and articles and blogs all built on this kind of premise, a list of things to do or places to visit or things to eat or movies to watch. And these lists are driven by fear, the fear of missing out. And they're built on the assumption that, that this life is all there is. You got to do, eat, watch, visit everything that is awesome before you die, because after that, there's nothing. You'll have missed out. You've got to suck every ounce of awesome out of this life, because afterwards, it is completely over. And this is a micro-expression of the secular worldview, which says this life is all there is. This world is all there is, but how contrary to the hope of the gospel, which says not only is this life, this world, not all there is, but there will be in the future is incomparably glorious to all there is now. So Christian, follower of Christ, you who have received the Holy Spirit, take heart. Be of good courage. Endure your present suffering by fixing your hope on what is to come. The revealing of the sons of God. The full restoration of creation. And the final redemption, even, of our bodies. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we are gathered here this morning, your children, the saints of God made so only by your grace and the power of your Holy Spirit. And though we are saints, though we are your children, we are also those suffering in the present time. Not only do we know this is true, Father, we feel that this is true. As our bodies break down, as our loved ones leave us, as we see the decay and hopelessness that surrounds us and that's within us at times, we know we are sufferers. And so, Father, I pray that through the sacred scriptures, through the power of your Holy Spirit that is present now, you would breathe hope into each one of our hearts. Lift our heads, open our eyes, and help us see in the eyes of our heart the glory that is to come. The full restoration of creation and the redemption even of our bodies. 
Father, we pray we need your help in this. And so we've gathered this morning to sit under your word and we gather throughout the week to encourage one another. And we also lift our voices and declare what is true. That even though right now we may be going from one misery to another misery, we truly are going from glory to glory to glory to glory to glory. And so help us declare that truth and walk in hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.